Welcome back to the Mole Pigs podcast. Today our guest is Damien Woods. Also with me today are Boya. Hi. Georgios. Hello. And I'm Will. Damien is based at the Hamilton Institute at Maynooth University, Ireland, where his group, Tap Dance, conducts research on molecular computers, collections of carefully engineered DNA molecules that bump into each other and interact in a test tube to solve some computational problem. His focus is on both the underlying computational theory and implementation in the lab. Previously, he held positions at INRIA, Caltech, the University of Seville, and University College Cork. Damien, hi. Hey, it's great to be here. So let's start with an important question. Where did the name of your group, Tap Dance, come from? Ah, so <laughs> that happened um, when I was at INRIA in France. And INRIA have a tradition where you, uh, where groups have names that are not the names of the PI, just, you know, some acronym-based names because computer scientists just love acronyms. So what does it stand for? It's the theory and practice of DNA computing engines. So um, we, we do both theory and practice, all right? So we do mathematical-style theory, proving theorems for models of computation uh, for DNA and molecular computers. And we do the practice of that, so we try to build those in the lab. And then um, the final part, so theory and practice of DNA computing engines, is because generally there could be a fuel that uh, pushes these things forward. You've mentioned a bit, but could you tell us a bit more about your group's research and, and what you're doing? Yeah, so um, we're, we're mainly driven by doing computer, um, computer science theory for models of computation. Some of those are molecular um, computing-inspired models. Uh, some are not. Some are more traditional models, like Turing machines or cellular automata. Um, and we also do experiments. So we try to build nanostructures um, in the lab, build DNA computers um, in the lab, molecular robots, self-replicators, things like that. Damon, you've been at many institutes, according to your bio. Uh, how, how has that changed your research interest over time? being in so many different environments and research groups? Okay, so I guess, um, so that's a tricky question. So definitely some of the institutes influenced my research directions, um, but but not all. <laughs> so I guess um, if, you, if you look at my publications, you'll see a, a diversity of stuff there perhaps, but for me, it's all following a common thread that has been there uh, right from the beginning that common thread would be an interest in f sort of physical systems and how they compute and the theory of computation as it applies to physical systems. So if you look, you know, you look outside and you see the wind blowing or you see water going down and the side of a mountain or something, you can think, oh, okay, there's some dynamics to those systems. They're evolving over time. If I set them up differently, I would get a different result. You know, so if I move the beginning of the river to a different location, it ends at a different location. The path that, it's, that it follows would be different. And so you can think of these things as computations. You can think of um, light um, bouncing off mirrors and going through lenses as computing. And that's actually what I worked on in my PhD. Um, so the theory of what you can do with optical computers. Um, I guess, yeah, I was interested in like okay so there's a kind of a more than a sequence of institutions there's a kind of a sequence of um, forms of computation that I've been interested in and that sort of better maps out um, what actually happened so I started thinking about optical computing then I moved on to thinking about simple universal models of computation like Turing machines in particular small universal Turing machines 
cellular automata like Rule 110 and post-tag systems. So I worked on those with my first PhD student, Turlock Neary. Um, then I moved on to work on um, things like uh, so membrane computing and Boolean circuits with Niall Murphy, another form of computing. Um, got into the theory of self-assembly around 2009, so that's about like 10 years after I started my PhD, and uh, got really into a topic called intrinsic universality, and then I got into molecular robotics, and then finally ending up by getting into trying to build some of these things in the lab. So how did you get interested in the experiment, and how was the experience of doing something completely different than the theory part, and how was the transition for you? Okay, so um, there's a few different answers to that. So even though I was a theoretician, um, I was generally okay with doing things with my hands, you know. So I'm not the best at carpentry or metalwork or whatever, but I could do. I grew up on a farm, and so we just, you know, did stuff with our hands. There's something wrong if, with something you fix it yourself, whether it's a tractor engine or a gate or <laughs> or something um, or a cow sick, um, and so. Um, uh, I guess some theorists would not be practical minded. I guess I'm a little bit practical minded. A second thing would be, so I'm uh, married to a biologist and I, I got to see there what uh, significantly uh, difficult and challenging experiments look like. And then I looked at what was going on in DNA computing or molecular pro programming. It's like, that looks easy. <laughs> so, um, so I would have started that in um, Eric Winfrey's group. So I went there in 2009. Um, and yeah, so I just uh, I just I, th I just thought it was possible to um, like one of the first things I wanted to do was build a kind of 1D cellular automata that never really happened. But it just it just seemed like hey, it's not that hard to go from a reasonable theoretical model of computation to to building it with DNA. Um, yeah. And so then I just got going at it. Um, so it's not that hard that did you um, meet any challenges during the process? Yeah, so I guess I said it wasn't that hard, but, you know, it, it takes a little while to get certain skills. I think it came naturally to me to do things like pipetting and um, having a well-organized system for your um, test tubes and so on and thinking of trying to think of clever ways to organize materials uh, to minimize the amount of work you have to do. Were there any particular challenges? Um Okay, one challenge I see. So sometimes people in our field, especially they do self-assembly. So I've done self-assembly and, and molecular robotics. So generally you'll use an instrument called an AFM, atomic force microscope. And some people say, oh, it's kind of tricky to use and so on. So I'm trying to, um, at the moment, just get rid of all that trickiness and just completely nail it down. So in my opinion, a good experimentalist should completely understand their instruments and uh, their instrument and all its quirks and everything and actually be in control of it and not have it in control of them. So um, if it's a QPCR machine, you should understand, oh, how, how does the illumination work in this machine? What's the limitations of it and so on? And if it's an AFM, you should understand, well, my sample's been moved around or else the tip is moving around. How is that happening? And I kind of try to fully understand things. So I think uh, there there's an important challenge there for everybody that's an experimental experimentalist, that if you really get to know the instrument instruments properly just overcome that challenge you'll be you'll, you'll get data that you can understand better and your experiments will be more pre let's say predictable you're, you're reducing the amount of uh, variance and 
and craziness um, from the outputs of your experiment. So when you say about getting to know your instruments, is that kind of, let's say an AFM, AFM says a class of instrument or your particular AFM? Because if I've heard right, I think AFMs, every time you change the tip, you have to break them in and, and there's a lot of hassle. I guess what I'm getting at is, does this get in the way of reproducibility if you need to kind of really get to know your particular instrument before you can interpret the results? Yeah, so, okay, first of all, I'd say reproducibility is the key. You want to sit down at an instrument, like a microscope or atomic force microscope or a light microscope or whatever, and get reproducible results. So primarily get to know your particular instrument, right? So you generally don't have access to other people's instruments but by doing that, you'll, you'll learn more. I don't think that harms reproducibility. If you're transported to another lab, so you maybe you're a PhD student in one lab and you get to know one particular instrument really well, and then you go to another lab and you see a different version of that instrument, it typically is the case that you know maybe 90% of what you learned in the first lab can be immediately moved over there, and then you have to learn some final 10%. Yeah, so get to know your particular instrument in your lab. That's the primary thing. So if you've gone to one of your particular experiments with AFM, one of your well-known papers was was with Dave Doty and some others on a, so that the name of it was Diverse and Robust Molecular Algorithms Using Reprogrammable DNA Self-Assembly. Um, Snappy title. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's received a lot of attention in the popular press. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the work and why you think it made such a big impression? Okay, so one, one of my favorite things about that particular piece of work is that um, I believe it's the first reprogrammable DNA molecular computer. And what I mean is as follows. We've got a set of DNA tiles, a set of DNA molecules that sit in the fridge. And if you come up with an algorithm um, suitable for, for the model encapsulated by those tiles, then, then you can just implement that model that day, that algorithm that very day. And then the next day, if you get up and um, you've got a different algorithm in mind, um, you can implement that second algorithm, and so on. And in that particular paper, we implemented 21 different algorithms. So, and at some point we just had to stop. We could have kept going, you know, we could have done hundreds or thousands of algorithms, just like with Python, you could keep writing algorithms forever. Okay, so what exactly is it? What we have is a kind of a six-bit circuit model. So a kind of a type of Boolean, a class of Boolean circuits that take, um, six bits as input, so no more than six bits, so that's the limitation of our system. Um, and what we've given is a set of DNA tiles that will implement any circuit in that um, six-bit model. So you can say that those tiles are six-bit universal for that model. We call the model iterated Boolean circuits. Kind of looks like a cellular automaton, but it's, it's a little bit different. Um, so you can the way the paper's presented is we come up with this model, we write it down, we say, oh, any six-bit circuit of a certain form um, that you can write uh, is, is an instance of this model. And then we show how we compile um, those circuits down, right the whole way down into um, DNA tiles. So we drop from sort of a high circuit level of abstraction down to um, a, a kind of a square tile pictorial type thing where, where you're just tiling these sort of uh, little ribbons. And then we, show, we, we bring in an error correction technique um, that Eric Winfrey came up with many years ago. And um, this helps to lower the error rate in our particular experiment and um, makes a big difference. 
And then in our levels of abstraction, we drop down to a, a sort of a, uh, a, a DNA tile-based motif, like a, a DNA strand level um, of abstraction, where we're reasoning about, oh, how will the strands be laid out and how will they bind to each other? And then in particular, how will we design their DNA sequences, um, which was a huge part of the project and one where I really learned a lot. And then finally, we uh, dropped to the lowest level where we actually buy the molecules um, so there were 355 DNA strands we bought and kept in the fridge. And then we had a really fun part of the project where we spent a number of months just coming up with new interesting programs and then, boom, implementing them in the lab. Like, for example, just because I mentioned, I think I mentioned earlier, like uh, when I when I was younger, so just like coming out of my PhD, I was working with a PhD student, uh, Turlock Neary. We worked on something called Rule 110, which is a cellular automaton. We were able to implement um, a three-bit instance of Rule 110 with these DNA tiles. So I really like that. So in the, you know, around 2018-19, we're connecting back to something I worked on in 2006. We were able to implement... Um, uh, so we implemented a sorting algorithm which sorts bits, so it puts all the zeros to one side and all the ones to the other. Um, an algorithm that told you whether a six-bit number was a multiple of three. Um, an, al uh, an algorithm that checked for palindromes. Um, algorithms that copied bits and drew patterns. Randomized algorithms. So lots, wide variety of different things. So that was fun. So do you think it was kind of the variety and the very visual nature of it because you have some beautiful images in that paper of kind of these long ribbons where you can see the computation happening do you think that's why it, it made such an impression in the media so it made an impression in the media yeah i don't uh, <laughs> um i like the, the images um so I, I took a lot of those afm images uh, i worked real hard to get them um looking good yeah i, I don't know i don't know i'm just so intimately tied to the project as and i should mention that um also uh, my collaborators um especially uh, all the people on that paper but especially dave Doty and eric winfrey put in we put in it was real like three musketeers kind of thing um enjoyed working with the people on the project um but yeah yeah it's i suppose it is kind of visually striking to see a tape recording of your computation like i I, I'll have to say that early in the part of the project, so towards the end of the project when we actually got it working, I remember we did I did our first um, randomized algorithm, right? So we had done um, an algorithm that sorted bits, with, uh, which I mentioned before. But basically, that means you get an input that's six bits, uh, zeros and ones, and then um, you're making a little ribbon, and uh, the ribbon is um, running. So it's hard to draw pictures on a podcast, <laughs> but you've, it's like um, a scarf sitting in front of you, right? And um, lay the scarf on the table and the scarf has been grown from left to right. And um, starting at the left, you've got some bits written there and the bits are in columns. And then over time, as the scarf grows, um, the zeros go to the bottom and the ones go to the top. Okay, so you're sorting the bits, you're pushing the ones to the top. Um, and then we did another one that just copied bits. So that was a really boring circuit, uh, one of the most boring circuits I know. Um, and all it does is just take some input bits and just copies them straight to the right. right. So it's just making stripes on a scarf, which is how mo most scarves actually look. They're either plain colored or they've got stripes, right? Um, but if you mix those two tile, if you mix the tiles for those two, what you get is a circuit that both copies and sorts at the same time. 
And the way we set it up, it's a randomized circuit. So at each step, the system chooses, hey, will I move, um, will I sort these bits or will I copy these bits? So you get this mixture of sorting and copying. And it happens at a very local level. Like uh, for each pair of bits, the system is saying, is flipping a coin essentially to say, hey, will I sort the bits? Will I move the one up? Or will I just copy the one to the right? Okay. But um, so we had, so over the years with algorithmic self-assembly, which is something that Eric Winfrey and his lab um, have, have worked on a, a lot. So in particular, um, you know, Rebecca Schulman, who's been on this podcast series, um, has done a, a lot of work on that. Also, uh, Paul Rodemont, um, Constantine Evans, who's now um, with us here in Ireland, um, and ver various other people have, have done amazing work on algorithmic self-assembly. And so the first two algorithms we did, I guess they kind of were, oh, right, okay, so people have done this kind of algorithmic self-assembly before. But then I had this randomized one, okay? And so I was doing the, sitting at the AFM, and the images were coming in of this randomized computation of a mixture of sorting and copying. And so the bits very slowly get sorted to the top of the scarf. And what I had there was in front of me a, a nanoscale tape recording of a large number of randomized events that were um, happening too quickly and they're too small for us to see um, live in real time by any method that I know. But yet I have a recording of exactly what happened there. And there was thousands of these things, right? So as, as long as I kept AFMing that day, I would see more and more and more of them. So that was a very visually striking moment um, for me in the project. So it was a bit difficult to answer your question at first because I've been so immersed in it. But I do, if I do remember back, I, yeah, the, the way they look can be very uh, striking. You said it takes 300 and 300 or so individual strands, unique strands, to build the six-bit computer. How does that number of strands grow as you want to increase the number of bits? Well, so the number of tile types per bit is 64, meaning that for each bit that you add, you'll need 64 more tile types. So scale for n bits is something like 64 times n. There's a minor correction to do with the how we handle the border, so just an additive term. Um, yeah, so it scales linearly in the number of bits. So it's cheap from the point of view of scalability. It's not like it scales polynomial in the number of bits or um, worse, exponential in the number of bits. It's, it's just linear. And so was six bits like a, just a choice which gave the best compromise of interesting algorithms and like just feasibility in the lab? Okay, good question. Um, we would have liked eight bits because the power of two, and you know, computer scientists mm. like power of two. Okay, so what, what the history of the, why it's six bits comes down to actually a sort of technological limitation that we jumped, bumped into at the time. So um, we can fit six bits onto um, so our scarf that I was describing. If I want to be fully truthful, it's not growing on a scarf; it's actually growing on a tube. And um, so the top is bound to the bottom of the scarf. So you get this long tube. So the, we've, we're growing a tube from left to right. And along that tube or that cylinder, um, the computation is happening as the thing grows. Um, this tube is made of DNA. So running along the, the long axis of the tube, you've got these um, DNA helices. And there are exactly 16 of them. So... We, we, Basically, we managed to make um, 
16 helix nanotubes. And we did try uh, for a little while. There was a, a student who worked with Dave on trying to scale up to 32 helix nanotubes. That kind of didn't work out at the time. Um, now we've learned a lot, and I think we could go back and hit that problem again, and we might know a bit better about what to do. But um, yeah, at the time, uh, 16 helix were one of the largest nanotubes we had made, so we just ran with that. Um, a second thing that's kind of important is to mention another student, Joy Hoy, who was working with me um, on, actually, on my first experimental project, which is still not published. And um, we were working with nanotubes there trying to make a self-replicator. And we needed to characterize uh, the, um, the growth of these nanotubes in a special way. In particular, we wanted to characterize the nucleation properties of these nanotubes. So basically, um, um, what at what temperature do they, the tiles start to come together to make these DNA nanotubes? And then also what, um, um, to give a measurement of the kinetic barrier to nucleation for these nanotubes, because we wanted to do something called seeded growth. So have a seed that grows a nanotube of it. And at the time, I think 16 Helix were the largest nanotubes that Joy and I had made. And they were made using a, um, um, a motif from um, a paper by uh, Pong Yin, Rizal Hariardi, and many others um, called the single-stranded tile motif. And so, yep, 16 Helix were the largest um, nanotubes working for us at the time uh, on, a, on a different project. And then we switched over to using these for algorithmic self-assembly. I heard that um, there's some constraint about the because the um, the tile grows in the tube, so there's a limit on the number of bits that you can use. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So there uh, there is, and one thing one might ask is um, why why a tube and why not go for something flat and try and get rid of that size limitation? And that's actually something we're trying to do now. So. Um, Tubes have been great for, for, for DNA self-assembly. There's something about them. They're just wonderful. We really like them. And um, so um, I've worked with tubes a bit. Um, Rebecca Schulman's lab has worked with tubes a lot. Um, uh, a bunch of other people have worked with tubes. Um, anyway, so we'd like to get better at moving away from tubes. Here's one thing that's really nice, and here's why we, re we used tubes. Okay, when you're growing a DNA nanotube, the growth front or the growth frontier, it looks, the, the quick way to say this is it looks the same everywhere. So basically, if you start putting tiles in there, there's no special border anywhere. So there's no top or bottom or, you know, there's, there's, no, there's no border. But as soon as you start doing flat things, like you, if you think you've got a, let's say you've got a DNA origami, right? Everyone in the field knows what a DNA origami is. There's something different about the staples along the edges compared to the staples on the inside. And so likewise with tiles, if you're building a DNA tile nanostructure, the tiles at the, on the outside, they might be a little bit different. And if you're really trying to control um, the growth order of things, which you want to do with algorithmic self-assembly, then that kind of stuff really matters. You know, you're going to have to have it be the case that the energetics of binding for tiles on the edge of your structure is exactly like the energetics of tiles binding on the inside of the structure. And that can be very hard to achieve and or take a lot of, um, maybe try a, a bunch of design iterations to eventually achieve that. So it's, it's sort of a non-trivial problem to solve. Um, there, there have been some um, algorithmic-based systems with a border on them and that are actual ribbons, like um, uh, ribbons made by Constantine Evans in his PhD thesis, for example. And so they've got a special double tile motif that's used there. 
Um, but yeah, doing that more generally to make structures that have arbitrary flat 2D shapes is, is sort of an open problem for algorithmic self-assembly. So this was quite an uh, international collaboration. And you've actually, uh, as we mentioned earlier, you've been to a lot of different places and countries, uh, France, the US, um, Ireland, Spain. Have you noticed any big research culture differences between all of these different places? Okay, there are massive differences um, in terms of um, the kinds of positions available as a researcher. So these are not research differences. So um, if I take the word researcher and I abuse it now and make it uh, the word, let's say, academic, then, yeah, there are differences in how um, the kind of positions available and how you go about getting um, positions, in particular permanent positions. Um, in terms of research culture, yeah, there can be differences. Um, there's differences amongst institutions and there can be a little bit of variability by country. But generally, scientists around the world that I've interacted with, we all have the basic sort of aims and goals. We go to go about problems in very different ways, but we all want to do good science. But it can be packaged a little bit differently in different countries. And with respect to permanent positions, you started your, your group at INRIA in France. What was it like moving from France and bringing your group with it? Did that have any unique challenges Okay, so moving countries in general, um, I'm, I'm okay with that. So I've always enjoyed, so I've worked in a variety of countries and I've really enjoyed working in those countries, mainly because you get to eat their food and uh, places like France and Spain and Southern California all have great food. So that's really good. In terms of actually, um, let's say, moving um, the group from, from INRIA to Ireland, I don't think it was particularly challenging at all because... Um, we, we had a shared lab space we were using while I was in France and it wasn't actually in INRIA, it was in another institution with André Estevez Torres and Jean-Christophe Gallet who, who were kindly, um, their, group, their groups are in Paris and they had given us some space to use and INRIA itself is an amazing place um, but it's computer science only essentially so it doesn't have wet labs for example and so what we were moving in terms of wet lab infrastructure was not very much at all. Um, it was sad to leave France and I was sad to leave Paris and my colleagues there, um, but we still keep in touch somewhat. Um, so um, we, uh, in particular, um, Nicolas Chabanel, who's now at Lyon, has a group and we have regular group meetings together, actually. So that's one really good thing that came out of that. Um, there, were, there were two people who came with me, um, Pierre-Etienne Mounier and Tristan Sterren. So Tristan is a PhD student, still with me here. And um, so it was probably challenging for them to to move country. And um, that's a great debt we incur to people when, when this happens. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I think the, the challenge then was setting up a lab in Ireland. So the way it worked for me, and I think um, when it comes to getting academic jobs there's different ways you do it in different countries and in different parts of the world i think for europe specifically um, um generally you don't get a startup if you're if you if you get a permanent academic position you don't get a startup package the way you do in the us um, but the funding is a little different there are opportunities here in europe like so for me i managed to get an erc award um which was significant enough to fund a group for 5 years 
and pay for an atomic force microscope. And then in coming to Ireland, the the Irish government gave me um, additional assistance, which was rather significant. So the organization is called Science Foundation Ireland. It's sort of like the NSF in the US, but for Ireland. And so they give funding to kit out the um, our lab and to build our lab. So the main challenge wasn't the move itself. The main challenge was over the next year or two, um, building out the lab. But that's also a very fun challenge because if, if you do experiments, you often have particular instruments you want to get. And once you've got the funding, you can get those instruments. I guess bringing your group members along is kind of an upgrade from the two-body problem to an n-body problem in academia. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Like when I moved to Spain, um, I was working with Turlock Neary, um, who was by then probably a postdoc, I think, and he had a position somewhere else. We were kind of working remotely, but I was working very closely with Niall Murphy, who was a PhD student of mine, and Niall decided to to come to Spain, and um, I I think Niall was the kind of person who liked traveling anyway, like myself, but then actually he, he, he met his future wife there, so I think that worked out great, actually. <laughs> I wonder how... Um, did you feel about traveling a lot and not in a state that is not so settled before finding a faculty position? Is it because you just like traveling a lot, so it's not a problem for you? Yeah, I, th- I think so. Yeah, I, I do like traveling a lot, so it's not a problem for me. That That is true. It was never really a problem. It was always like an opportunity, um, something I really enjoyed doing. But I, I have a wife, and we'd we'd have to get we we would have repeated two body problems to solve, which we generally did solve. Um, so, for example, we both went to California. We go, both got positions at Caltech. Um, that kind of thing c- can be tricky to solve in general. Um, so, uh, but anyway, yeah, I, um, you know, I've really enjoyed um, going and working in different places. And so, you know, it means also when I go back to those places, um, they've kind of a deeper. Um, meaning for me I guess you know so I, I know when I go back to Sevilla in Seville I, I know what kind of food I want to go and try out. So, since moving to Ireland what are you most excited for for your group for the future? I think mostly helping the people in the group um, realize their projects. The projects we're undertaking here are kind of non-trivial um, I guess it's the same everywhere but um, we we try to do meaningful projects that we think, you know, life is short, so you, you, you got to pick carefully what you work on. So helping people to to realize those challenging projects, that's that's one thing I'm really looking forward to. So um, seeing those get finished, it's always hard to finish off uh, major projects. Um, I have examples of unfinished projects. Um, so um, I, I, I tend to gravitate towards projects that are they're so big, sometimes they're personality changing. You come out of it and you're a different person than when you went in and you've really learned a lot. And sometimes it's a different part of science that you've worked in and, and or sometimes it's just a new part of mathematics that you needed to learn or work with. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to doing um, lots of that. I'm kind of curious, following up on what you said, what makes it hard to finish a project? Oh, wow. Okay. Um I could probably ask you the same thing, <laughs> Boya or Georgius or Will. I bet you everybody has examples of unfinished projects here. Um, okay, I'll try to be concrete. Um, so when I when I first so in two thousand nine I, I went I took a position um, as a molecular programming fellow. I think was the name of the position. It was a postdoc in um, 
in mainly in Eric Winfrey's group, but also in Shuki Brooks' group in Caltech, um, both of which are wonderful people and uh, great scientists. And um, I started working with um, with Eric and somebody called Bernie Yorkey, who's rather famous in our field, as he was um, one of the um, inventors of toehold mediated strand displacement and brought that to as a as a technique, which later was used to build uh, strand displacement circuits, for example, um, and many other things. And um, yeah, we we tried to build a self replicator. Um, we we made some really great progress, but we never we never quite published it. We never quite finished it off. And um, so, why didn't that happen? Is is a kind of a rewording of your question um, for that particular project. Um, the, well, the data wasn't quite there. The, it was actually my first uh, experimental project um, using DNA, and it was a little bit stochastic and noisy. It was one, unlike many other projects we have. It involved use of um, duct tape and um, building uh, our own apparatus in a glove box, uh, drilling holes in that glove box, having pipes go in. Um, we were bubbling in a solution, controlling the temperature in this giant glove box and the humidity and all this crazy stuff. So we, yeah, so for my first project, we kind of built the, the setup together and yeah, the, the results were mixed. So sometimes the experiment would work beautifully and then sometimes it wouldn't work. Something would go wrong. And we try to figure out, oh, what's going on? And we realized, well, this home-built setup we've built, there's some imperfections here and there. And one of our enemies in this project was spurious nucleation. And that, that would happen sometimes. So I really wanted to get that project in a, in a uh, setup so that it worked in a much easier way and it worked 100% of the time. And um, because of that, it, it never really got finished. And then... Um, we were moving along and then we had this opportunity to do this algorithmic uh, self-assembly project um, with Dave um, Doty, who I mentioned earlier, and um, with Eric and, and some others. And we, we kinda, I kind of switched over to that and uh, left that project unfinished. But um, yeah, we're, we're going to continue it now, but I think in a better way. So we've had time to step back and I want to complete and we've completely rethought the project. We've got new ideas about how to do it in a much better way. In particular, there's a postdoc here, Trent Rogers, who who's had some great ideas on, on, on how to better control, let's say, nucleation, which is a fundamental problem in DNA self-assembly anyway. Um, and um, another postdoc recently started with, a, with us, Ismail Muller-Ruz, is, st has started working on it, actually. So, um, yeah, I'm ready to see um, to see the version 2.0 of that take off. <laughs> Sometimes projects don't get finished um, because they're boring. <laughs> so um, that doesn't happen to me so often. But I think I've got about 10 or 20 folders there of my computer of different things that didn't get finished. And yeah, maybe it was something in theory and it didn't turn out to be that interesting. So you ask some question and then the answer is easy. And you're like, oh, yeah, OK, so there's, uh, I'm not sure I want to follow up on that. So there's also that as well. So it's very different for theory and experiment, I think. When research occasionally gets to the point that it's very boring or, or you need a break is there anything you do kind of outside of, of academia and work okay so research never gets boring for me actually um I, I i guess i was referring there to particular projects where it quickly went to something not interesting um so then you just stop thinking about that and you think about something else um 
what else do I do besides research? Um, well, I have an, a job here where I do. I here's some non-research things I do: research administration, research and and accounts and hiring of people and um, all that kind of stuff. But that's not really that's really not what you're asking about. Um, I play a bit of drums. Um, might try to record an album with some old friends of mine. We tried to be rock stars when we were teenagers, and that was my that that kind of didn't work out. I became a scientist instead. So I'll play some drums. Um, I like to go cycling, but I just kind of always cycled a little bit. Like I used to cycle to school when I was a kid, but um, now I actually get on a bike and I, I went a hundred kilometers the other day, so that was fun. But yeah, just chilling out. Yeah, hanging out with my family. There's been a lot of that since coming back to Ireland. There's been a lot of that. Do you think teenage Damien would be disappointed that you're a scientist rather than a rock star? Huh? Yeah. Good question. <laughs> um. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'd like to think not, but you know, maybe he was a bit of an idiot. So. <laughs> At least maybe when you get your um, album out, you can call yourself one of the few true rock star scientists. <laughs> yeah, but are there any rock star scientists who've actually become rock stars and aren't just you know scientists who sometimes play music? I think there is. I think I think the guitarist from Queen is. Uh, has a PhD in astrophysics. Ah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's right. That's right. And 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 actually, uh, bad religion. Um, singer of bad religion. Scientist. Christos Papadimitriou is a famous um, theoretical computer scientist who has a band. Never seen him, but yeah. So yeah, there are there are some musician scientists out there. How do you cultivate a multidisciplinary environment in your research group? Yeah. So um, what you can try to do. Um, so it's different for different groups, I guess. One can try to hire people from a variety of backgrounds. So when we advertise positions, we specifically say that um, we take from a wide variety of backgrounds. Um, so that's one thing. Second thing is uh, maybe if somebody has a strength in theory, you might try and um, encourage them to look at papers that are um, far from their interests, um, but but yet might sort of gel with them somehow. Uh, so that's something else you can do. Um, I think having a vibrant group meeting is important and having a coherent, yeah, a vibrant and coherent group meeting because ultimately what will help people um, both like in presenting their own work. So it helps you if you can talk about your own work and get feedback on that um, from people who have a variety of backgrounds. And then it works the other way when you see those other people talking and thinking and you see the kind of questions they ask that might help um, inform you about like if you're mostly from an, uh, let's say a, a biology background or a physics background or a chemistry background and you don't know anything about computer science and then you see computer scientists ask certain questions in certain ways and you see what they like um, it might help you um, think in that way I think another thing is to encourage um, um, folks from a theory background to try an experimental project and vice versa and in particular to pick something that's like going to be a paper you know like so then you're really well motivated to get to get moving at it so damien what would be one of your favorite things to implement okay so in the lab um okay first of all i'd like to implement the things we're trying to implement right now which are um um, i'll get to the answer in a second but i should say that um we're trying to build uh, reconfigurable robotic systems. So Kai Wood, a PhD student here, is working on that. 
he's working on implementing a model called Turning Machines, um, which are like Turing machines, except they've got an N in there and they're actually a robotic model. Um, I mentioned implementing self-replicators and uh, Ismail and Trent are working on that. And then precise, more precisely controlling the dynamics of self-assembly and maybe even building algorithmic, fancy algorithmic self-assembly systems. Um, Trent Rogers, uh, Constantine Evans um, are working on that. And then cool ways of computing, um, new ways of computing. Tristan Sterren here and Abir Eshra, a postdoc, are, are working on that. But besides all those things, in the more distant future, one thing I'd like to implement would be an intrinsic, intrinsically universal tile set. And so this ties back to um, some of my favorite theory work that I've worked on. And so an intrinsically universal tile set is a tile set that's able to simulate a wide class of other tile sets or other tile systems, okay? So we know you can have, um, so we know that the operating system on your computer, it could run other programs. It can even run other um, operating systems like in a virtual machine or whatever. And we know uh, from theory that, um, so Alan Turing gave us a chart, Turing machine, what we now call the Turing machine, but also show that there are universal Turing machines. Um, so you could have a universal Turing machine that simulates any other. Um, we know that tiles, algorithmic tiles, so um, early results by Eric Winfrey and related results by Paul Rodeman, David Soloveitchik, show that you could use tiles to run Turing machine programs and in fact use that to build shapes. So you could encode a shape inside an algorithm, a Turing machine, and then have some tiles come together and run that Turing machine to build the shape. So that's pretty cool. It's a kind of universality, right? You're simulating Turing machines there. But what happens, like imagine now you want to have a kind of self-universality where you've got a set of tiles. And what that tile set can do is if, um, so if Boya has um, a tile set, and let's suppose it builds a tree, starting with the roots, it builds a trunk, and then it builds the branches and finally the leaves. It's making a 2D picture of a tree, let's say. And uh, Giorgio's has um, a tile set that builds a smiley face, uh, starting at the top, the forehead, and going all the way down to the chin. And then uh, Will has um, a tile set that builds a, a house, say a picture of a house. Um, well, I want to have, what, what I could have is um, a tile set that could build any one of those things, depending on how I program it. And by program it, I mean I pick out um, some of the tiles and I lay them together to make a seed. And then from there, it just grows to make uh, one of those three things, depending on how I set that seed exactly. And so we wondered if there was such a tile set, theoretically, and this is how I got into self-assembly, actually. Um, so we... So one of my favorite things to do, or one, one, of, one of the most important things in science is coming up with good questions. And this was one of my favorite questions. And the question we had was, is the, um, the, uh, a particular tile assembly model, is it intrinsically universal? Does it have one of these tile sets that could build anything you want? And not only build the shapes, but also build, do the dynamics just right. So I said, boy, is tiles built the tree from the, the roots up to the leaves. So I want to program a system so it will build the tree from the roots to the leaves and then be able to reprogram it so it builds the tree from the leaves down to the roots. Um, and so you can precisely not only make shapes, but also uh, capture the dynamics of any tile set that you're simulating. Um, 
So I'd like to I'd like to implement an intrinsically universal tile set. The problem is we worked for quite some years, and I say we, it was myself, and then I met a bunch of people from Iowa State University, which was Jack Lutz and his three PhD students, uh, Matt Paddits, Scott Summers, Dave Doty, and then later um, Robbie Schweller. Uh, we all worked together on this project, and we found after many years of working and trying to prove. Uh, whether or not there was such a tile set, we, we, we came up with the answer, yes, there is such a tile set. So we found a tile set that is intrinsically universal for the abstract tile assembly model. So it's a theoretical result. Um, but by our construction, the tile set would have many millions of tiles. And so earlier we talked about the fact that I had implement, uh, myself and my colleagues had implemented a system that was 6-bit universal, but had 355 tiles. So now if I want to implement um, a tile set, the only known tile set intrinsically universal for that model, the abstract tile assembly model, that would require millions of tiles. It could be tens or hundreds of millions, by the way. So um, we didn't actually compute the exact number of tiles um, because the paper is at a higher level of abstraction than that. But we did show that such a tile set exists. Um, but I could imagine a project where one scales that problem down. Like I know that Matt Pattis' group later on in the University of Arkansas figured out that, hey, there's a system with about 100,000 tile types that's uh, intrinsically universal for, um, there's a tile set with 100,000 tile types that's intrinsically universal for the 3D version of the um, the ATAM, the abstract tile assembly model. So 100,000, okay. If we could scale down to, let's say, 1,000, and, and find a, some sub-model that is um, able to do interesting things. It can, I don't know, simulate Turing machines, make a variety of interesting shapes, but not the full expressivity of, of, of the tile assembly model. Then, um, yeah, to, to build that would be something else because now, instead of having 355 tiles to implement any six-bit circuit, I would have 1,000 tiles that can implement a huge variety of tile assembly systems. So I wouldn't need to design individual tile sets to do different things. I would just have this one tile set in the fridge and that could keep us busy for many years to come. Sorry, sorry. are those people saying that it's um, they've, they've shown that the smallest number of tiles for a universal tile set in 3D is on the order of 100,000? Or could there be a... a, a there could be a much smaller there could be a smaller one they're actually showing the opposite what they're showing is um um you know with a hundred thousand it's enough to do the job so so maybe you could do it uh, for the 3d model with ten thousand or or less so generally um yeah the results you in the in so the theoretical results on when you give a positive construction in tile assembly you you'll give a construction and then maybe later you could approve it and reduce the number of tile types in fact, myself and uh, Tristan Sterren and Matthew Cook just had a paper at the recent DNA conference where we used four tile types to simulate any Boolean circuit, um, but we kind of cheat by allowing um, um, the seed to be a disconnected structure, meaning that you can imagine you've got an origami with um, little um, um, blocks that are on it already, and then your tiles are going to attached to that origami, attached to that surface and flow through, like flowing through a maze. Imagine someone has built an arbitrary maze, but they've put little annotations on the wall that says, oh, if you want to walk through this maze, you got to solve some Boolean gates. And um, by doing that, you could use a maze to encode a circuit, and then you can have tiles flow through the maze, uh, running the circuit that's encoded by the walls of the maze. And uh, it turns out you can do that with just four tile types. So depending on the setting, um, 
yeah, you can get really small tile sets to do interesting stuff. But but do you conjecture that there is a uh, an experimentally feasible uh, experiment uh, universal tile set? Yeah, except um, so we tried. So actually, I had a summer student here, Dara McConville, come work for a summer and try to find. Um, yeah, what could you do with like a hundred tiles or something like that? You know, and it's it's not a straightforward problem. So I think it's a problem that has uh, legs theoretically. Um, so like, as in, we have to sit down and do some theory to try and find something on the order of a thousand and characterize what it does. Um, but yeah, I would guess, I, I would say that, yeah, it is possible with a thousand tiles, you can do really do a lot of stuff. And then I also get, I also, conje- well, conjecture is the wrong word here, but I also um, would guess that we could implement something with that number of tiles in the lab in the next, you know, not today, not tomorrow, but in the sort of next five, ten years sort of scale. This reminds me of the history of um, aperiodic tilings where, Mm. you know, they started with finding, say, a set of 20,000 tiles. And then by the end, um, I think it was Roger Penrose, did he come up with it in two tiles? Um, Yeah. I'm wondering if, if you have any intuition of what the lower bound on or, or what the optimum number of tiles for for intrinsic universality might be okay so the answer is one okay but here's why <laughs> i'm going to cheat all right if you if you allow my tiles to be not square all right which is reasonable here we're talking about very small numbers of tiles all right then i can give you one tile that simulates um any Turing machine or any tile assembly system. Okay, right. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to say a little bit about that, right? Because it's one of my favorite papers. <laughs> By the way, it was rejected the first few times we tried to submit it, and the rejections. Some of the rejections seem to be. It looks like the authors here are having too much fun. This doesn't seem serious to me. <laughs> so the the paper is called "One Tile to Rule Them All." Um, and basically, we have a tile that has many sides on it, right? It's a regular polygon, but it's got millions of sides, all right? So a square has four sides, a hexagon has six, da-da-da-da-da, ours has hundreds of millions, okay? And um, again, we didn't try to compute the exact number of tiles, but what it does is it simulates the intrinsically universal tile set I mentioned earlier. And what happens is, you, if you pick up this tile, it looks almost like a gold, uh, it's colored golden, by the way. So it looks almost like a golden ring, right? So that's why it's one tile to rule them all. And um, every, um, so let's say it's got N sides. It's, then it's got N rotations, right? It looks different on each of the N rotations. And each one of those rotations is kind of going to act like a bunch of square tiles together. That's sort of the way to think about it. In fact, each one of those rotations acts like a different square tile. So um, we, yeah, we showed um, with those tiles that are able to rotate and have many sides, just one of them is enough to simulate any um, uh, tile set in the tile assembly model. But um, just coming to what you said, Will, about aperiodic tilings, right? There's also an interesting connection there because in the end of the paper, we, we made this connection to aperiodic tilings and we give, we showed that that one tile, uh, when it has um, something like, I'm going to get this wrong, but 44 sides, something like that. Uh, there, there's a single tile that simulate, that, that, that has aperiodic tilings 
with the small cheat that we uh, need to allow holes in the tilings. So we've got this um, regular um, 40 gone or 44 gone and um, the different, each different rotation simulates a square wang tile and you, you take a small aperiodic wang tile set and, and you can just simulate it with our system. Um, the fact that it cheats by putting small holes in there is not a huge problem in, in my view um, because there are other ways to get aperiodic tilings with one tile. So Penrose, Penrose has the, um, I think they're called the kite and the dart, the two tiles. Um, there is the Sockler Taylor um, tile that kind of looks like a hexagon, except it comes in a few flavors. So you've got this single hexagon, but it's actually a three, okay, so there's a 3D version. So this one cheats by allowing for 3D, and then you look at its 2D tilings and they're aperiodic, um, which means that um, they don't they don't repeat in, in a certain sense. So if I'm standing on the tiling and I look out to infinity, I see a certain pattern. And then if I move to another part, I take a step and move to a different part of the tiling, I see a di different pattern, right? Um, so that's what aperiodic means here. Um, um, so the Socular Taylor tile is a single tile that looks kind of like a hexagon, but it's a 3D thing with some extra gadgets attached. And when you tile with that thing, you've got one tile that can tile a plane, but it's cheating because it's 3D. Um, uh, you can have a disconnected version of the Socular Taylor tile in 2D, which is kind of just like the 3D one. It also um, is aperiodic. And then um, there's one or two other um, single tiles that, that, that cheat, and one of them is ours. So the way we cheat is um, by allowing holes uh, between the tiles. So I, I thought that was kind of cool that we did some self-assembly stuff and then we were able to link it to more classical tiling theory so that was fun uh, yeah that was what eric demean martin demean shandra friquette matt paddits robbie schweller and uh andrew winslow is there any chance of implementing tiles with holes in them in, in dna and 40 sites okay uh yeah so holes are not a problem um 40 sides is a big problem <laughs> um so basically, um, if you think about, um, if you're going to use DNA hybridization, right, you want to be binding by at least, let's say, five bases. And in fact, you'll need more than that to get some orthogonality. So then suddenly the thing that you're talking about has scaled up a lot. And so then I don't think it's a super good direction for going with many sides. In fact, one of my experimentalist friend used to just, we'd go for lunch together and he'd, he'd just really enjoy laughing at our tile that had hundreds of millions of sides but you know it's a beautiful beautiful theoretical object and that's and like an important point i think that some experimental when, when it comes to theory and experiment I, I know that some experimentalists feel that um the theory should somehow be in service of experiment or meaning that um do theory because it'll help us understand what is possible with experiment or not and i definitely agree with that i sometimes use theory in that way but i also really really enjoy theory just for the the beauty of it when you find kind of something unexpected like a proof that's really nice or that was very challenging to get to and then really surprised you with the way it worked out um yeah i think that's uh that's one kind of scientific inquiry that's one mode of scientific inquiry that's very satisfactory for me thank you so much for joining us damien stay tuned to our newsletter for details on our next podcast episodes thanks for listening